Checking the pulse on big banks, this is Industry Focus. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials. For The Motley Fool, this is Christine Hargis, and I'm joined by Senior Banking Specialist John Maxfield on the line. John, it's great to have you. Hello. It, hello. It is, it's always great to be with you, Christine. So as we alluded to on last Monday's episode, this week kicked off earnings season with bank earnings front and center of our attention. Overall, it wasn't really a terribly exciting quarter for banks. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course, Christine, because if you think about any industry, where you want boring banking is definitely the industry you want to see that in. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, some common threads that we saw included fairly successful cost-cutting measures across the board, which, uh, along with some reduced legal expenses, boosted profitability for a, a number of the major U.S. banks. Um, on the other hand, though, we saw some extremely low uh, interest rate environment effects that has been making it really hard for these banks to expand their profitability and their net interest margins. So on that note, I think Wells Fargo would be actually a really good bank for us to dig into to see an example of this effect and uh, what it's what having on traditional banks. So it was the first time that quarterly income didn't increase for Wells Fargo after an 18-quarter streak. John, can you shed some light? Should investors in Wells Fargo be concerned? When you think of Wells Fargo, so first, let me just answer that really, really, really straightforwardly. Uh, no, investors in Wells Fargo should absolutely not be concerned, and here's why. When you look at Wells Fargo, to your point, they've grown their quarterly net income on a year-over-year basis for 18 consecutive quarters before this most recent one. So the question is, well, what happened in this most recent quarter that's, that, that caused this trend to come to an end? And there are really two things that contributed to that. The biggest one, and this is something you already mentioned, was these continued low interest rates. So banks make money. A bank like Wells Fargo, which is a traditional bank, it, it takes deposits and then it makes loans. Um, they make money by arbitraging interest rates. So they take, you know, you, you put money in a checking account, you get 0% interest rate on that or, 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 you know, maybe 10 basis points on it or something like that. But then they lo loan that same exact money out at say three and a half percent or four percent. Well, anytime interest rates are are really low right now, those loans are indexed typically to interest rates. So the money they're going to take in from that is going to be much much lower. Now, if short-term interest rates go up, then they'll obviously take more money in in revenue from those loans, but they won't pay as much out if you think about it on an on an in, on, you know if you normalize for the increase in, in the cost relative to the increase and the earnings they'll take from their asset portfolio, their costs won't increase as much because a lot of those deposits and a lot of the uh, bank's liabilities are non-interest bearing. So they're non-interest bearing whether interest rates are high or whether, whether they're low. And so on a year-over-year -year basis, if you just normalize four interest rates, Wells Fargo would have earned something like a billion dollars more in revenue and therefore net income um, if interest rates didn't continue to go down. So what that says to me is that once interest rates do start going up, there's a lot of captive net income and captive revenue in Wells Fargo that will come out um, once that finally happens. A billion dollars, that, that's a big figure right there. So how do you arrive at that number? So the, the way that banks articulate how much money they're earning from their asset portfolio, which holds loans and securities, is through the net interest margin. And then an interest margin is basically, it, it just, it, it, it it is, a, um, it is a formula that tells you how much 
income a bank is earning off its earning asset portfolio. So let's say that a bank has a portfolio of $100 million and it earns, say, $3 million in interest income from that, its net interest margin would be 3%. Well, Wells Fargo's fell from 3.2% last year to below 3% this year. And it's that, it's that difference between last year's net interest margin and this year's net interest margin that accounts for that uh, billion dollar uh, uh, of captive income. And just that little bit, that 0.2%, apparently could make a huge difference. That's exactly right. Well, think about it. I mean, Wells Fargo, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but they have something like $1.7 trillion in assets. And I think something like 85% of those are earning assets. You're you're talking about one point, you know, three point, the difference between 3.2% on $1.5 trillion in assets and the difference, and 2.95% on $1.5 trillion in assets. So while the percentage may seem really small, because the assets are so enormous, it equates to a relatively large number. And how are those assets trending? Uh, is, is Wells Fargo doing anything to uh, anticipate a potential increase in interest rates? Yeah, that's a great question, because Wells Fargo actually is doing a, it is purposely setting up its asset portfolio. So when interest rates do rise, it will be able to take advantage of that. Or to look at it another way, they won't be hurt as much by, rise, by that immediate increase in, in interest rates um, as other banks will be. Because yet, when, when you're dealing with banks and you're talking interest rates, you have to keep two things in mind. First, it, when interest rates go up, banks will make more income. However, the securities in their securities portfolio will have to be written down in value when interest rates rise because a securities value is inversely related to interest rates. So interest rates go up, security values go down. Um, so, you, so what you want to do as a bank is if you anticipate interest rates are going up, you want to keep your portfolio really, really liquid. You don't want to have a lot of long-term securities. You want short-term securities that aren't impacted in their value as much in that, in that original uptick. And that is what Wells Fargo has done. But by making, increasing the liquidity on its balance sheet, it's decreased its net income um, that it's earning from that. But again, this is just a temporary thing that will pay off in spades once interest rates do, in fact, um, increase whenever that, is, whenever that comes to fruition. Interesting. So it seems like on the whole, Wells Fargo investors actually have a lot to feel really optimistic about. I would say that. I mean, you know, its shares aren't cheap. I, they trade for they. Wells Fargo's shares typically over the years have traded for two times book value or, or a little bit less than two times book value. But because it, it keeps its expenses so low and because it's so well run and manages its credit risk um, so well. It, it can return 14, 15% on its equity. So you could still make a ton of money by investing in the Wells Fargo, even at an expensive price, so long as you're willing to hold their shares for a very long time. Well, there you go. So that's one promising story to keep an eye on. Let's shift our attention over to the company that was actually at the forefront of last week's conversation, JP Morgan. Is there a story there that stands out to you from their quarterly report? The big story with JP Morgan is that in the fourth quarter of last year, of 2014, a lot of people came to J.P. Morgan and are saying, look, and this is on, their, on J.P. Morgan's conference call, look, you guys would be more profitable if you were to break up J.P. Morgan into its component pieces. And specifically, when you talk about 
breaking a bank like J.P. Morgan up into its component pieces. You talk about an investment banking side and your traditional banking side. So investment bank, is, that's your traditional Wall Street operations. You're trading, you're mergers, your merger and acquisition um, um, advisory business, your equity underwriting, your debt underwriting, all those types of things. Well, last quarter, it was a, or the fourth quarter of last year, it was a really tough quarter for Wall Street operations because there was a ton of volatility in the fixed income markets thanks to what was going on in the oil market, the, the decline in, in oil prices, and also because of the Swiss National Bank's decision to unpeg its currency from the euro. So you had all these things go on that hit the, hit the trading operations of Wall Street banks. Uh, that dropped their revenue way, way down from that side of the operation, caused people to wonder whether or not J.P. Morgan should be broken up. Um, but then this quarter, it was, the exact opera, it was the exact opposite. Volatility was way down to fixed income markets. There's a lot of activity going on. Um, in terms of mergers, acquisitions, and, and other types of advisory work. So, well, J.P. Morgan saw a huge boost in its uh, investment banking operations. In fact, its, its, its operations from uh, – its advisory operations saw their net revenue increase by 26% on a year-over-year basis, which is a huge amount. So that kind of um, – uh, uh, muffled any calls for J.P. Morgan to break up. So it, it was really a, a vindication, if you will, for CEO J.P. Diamond. Huh, interesting. So what do you think? Is that like rightly so, or do you think maybe they should still consider breaking up? You know, it's my opinion that, you know, you, you can look at uh, banks like J.P. Morgan through a number of different contexts, but one of them is that a bank like J.P. Morgan is absolutely critical for the United States to continue to hold its position, uh, its economic position in the world, and particularly vis-a-vis China, because China has very large banks that are starting to go out and do multinational work and do work for other clients, that are, and these are becoming huge banks that are able to do a variety of different things. Well, if we want U.S. banks to be able to compete in the future against banks like that, they've got to be able to not only have the size that is necessary to serve large multinational clients, but they've also have to have the diversity of products. And what I mean by that is you have, a bank has got to be able to both do investment banking stuff and your traditional deposit taking and loan making and setting up syndicates for loans um, in order to be kind of a one-stop shop for these multinational, for these multinational companies. Um, and that is a really important thing for the United States. So for that reason, I personally think that we, you, we would want J.P. Morgan to stay together. And on top of that, J.P. Morgan is run by, if not the best banker in the country, certainly one of a small handful of the top bankers in the United States right now. And if Jamie Dimon makes the decision that, look, I think that we're a better, we're a better bank taken together, I, I think that his history um, gives him credibility in, in that determination better than, say, you know, someone like me or any other just random bank analyst. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. So, John, on a different note, uh, so the Boston Marathon was this morning. I uh, started with the first heat at, I think it was 8.50 in the morning. So, obviously, this is the very historical 26.2-mile race. And in the spirit of incredible performance by the 30,000 participants, my final question of the day for you is, is there a bank that you would be comfortable buying and holding for 26.2 years? <laughs> I love that. That is a great question. Um, yeah, absolutely. There are 
uh, let me think, two banks in particular that I would feel as comfortable as you can feel about owning a bank for a long time. I would feel, I would feel comfortable owning Wells Fargo for many decades, and I would feel comfortable owning U.S. Bank Corp. for many decades. So I live in Portland, Oregon, and U.S. Bank, even though it's based in Minneapolis, they, the U.S. Bank, where it gets its name from, was actually a Portland, based in Portland, Oregon. And so there are a lot of sh- old-time U.S. Bank shareholders in Portland, many of which are extremely wealthy just because of their U.S. Bank or stock that they've held for many decades. And so you're saying and you're biased. I think that uh, if you want to eat, that U.S. Bank Corp's future, you know, as best as we can guess, probably will look somewhat similar to its past in that regard. All right, great. Well, there you have it, folks. Your foolish reminder that the most successful investing is a marathon and not a sprint. As usual, if you've got any questions for myself or John, please send them our way. Our email address is industryfocus at fool.com, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Hope everyone has an awesome week. Until next time. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 